This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Anne Barraclough looks at the early legal profession in Dunedin. Judy Southworth profiles a film pioneer, and we hear about the lives of early doctors. Lord and order, the courts, police, lawyers, judges, and the legal system are all things that we take for granted. Yet, how did they function in a settler settlement? Anne Barraclough takes a look at the early days of the justice system in Dunedin. Before the treaty, legal actions had been occurring, for example, land sales, and law was kept by JPs and lay magistrates. The first conveyance in the South Island was on the 9th of November, 1832, when Peter Williams, manager of the Preservation Whaling Station, bought from the Maori all the land along the West Coast from Preservation Inlet to Dusky Sound, for 60 muskets. Between 1835 and 1840, a Scottish lawyer from Sydney made several trips to Southland for a conveyancing fee of five guineas per sale, which he took in whalebone, selling it in Sydney for a large profit. Prior to the appointment of the first judge in Dunedin, the unpopular Sydney Stephen, in 1850, administration of the law had been in the hands of Alfred Chetham Strode, appointed Deputy Inspector of Police and later Resident Magistrate and Sub-Treasurer for the Settlement by Governor Gray in 1848. Aged 25, he had arrived with a small detachment of police, a sergeant, a corporal, four privates and a Maori named Epa. Strode was initially warmly welcomed. He, an Anglican, was required to act as chairman of the JPs, who comprised most of the Presbyterian city fathers, and soon was isolated by them, Cargill declaring him a stranger hostile to the principles on which the settlement founded, one who has no interest in the settlement and does not possess the confidence of the settlers. The first jail was a tent where inmates were held in leg irons. There was little or no crime in Otago. The occupants of the jail for many years were sailors who had jumped ship and drunkards. A.H. Reed said, It may be fairly claimed indeed that never since the Pilgrim Fathers had embarked for New England had Britain planted a more law-abiding community on a distant shore. Two years later, Judge Stephen, whose salary of £800 rankled with the Scotch, after their pressure on St George Grey, returned to Wellington, where he became Chief Justice. Interestingly, historian A.H. McClintock, in his History of Otago, when explaining the feeling in Otago that there was no need for a judge, says that there had only been one criminal case since the arrival of the first ship, and that was so unimportant it could have been dealt with by a bench of justices. In a footnote, he tells us that the case was one of indecent assault on a child of six. There were no further sittings of the Supreme Court in Dunedin until 1858, 
when Justice H.P. Gresson arrived on horseback from Christchurch to preside. The first lawyer in Dunedin, David Garrick, arrived in 1848 on the John Wycliffe with his wife and two children, but left for Sydney four years later. It wasn't until the gold rush in 1861, when Dunedin rapidly became New Zealand's major city, that the law profession took off. Strode was appointed Goldfields Commissioner and performed his duties admirably, most legal matters being mining cases. H.P. Richmond, a lawyer who had practised in Dunedin since the late 1850s, became a Supreme Court judge in 1862 and resident judge in 1863. Many cases of libel and slander were heard in the 60s and 70s. The law profession in Dunedin got off to a good start, maybe because Dunedin was such a law-abiding place. In 1862, 33 names were listed on the New Zealand Law Society's list of barristers and solicitors in Dunedin. Ian Galloway, in his Centennial History of the New Zealand Law Society, quotes Paul Kavanagh, a long-term editor of the New Zealand Law Journal. All of us had learned to regard Dunedin as the nursery of our profession. And more importantly still, the highest traditions of the profession were cradled and nurtured in this city. Here too, from the earliest days, have practised some of the greatest men who have adorned the bench and the bar in New Zealand. The Dunedin branch of the Law Society was established in 1869 and the Law Clerks Association in 1871. By 1877, the number of barristers and solicitors in Otago featured names to become well-known, such as Haggart, Downey Stewart and Cook. In 1888, Alfred Charles Hanlon was admitted to the bar. He had begun his law career aged 15 as an articled law clerk to J.A.D. Adams practising in Port Chalmers and soon established a reputation as a skilled advocate in criminal cases. Before he was 30, he defended the baby farmer Minnie Deans and although he did not enable her to escape the gallows, he went on to have a distinguished career over 50 years. The original law courts had been in the old Provincial Council building in Princess and Bond Streets from 1875 to 1902. The present law courts in Lower Stewart Street were opened in 1902. The profession marked in wigs and gown, two abreast from the old to the new premises before huge crowds who derived great amusement from the pair leading the procession, A.C. Hanlon and C.E. Payne, Hanlon being very tall and Payne very short. There was some embarrassment as no one wanted to partner Ethel Benjamin, the first female lawyer, but J.M. Galloway, who had always championed her cause, Ian Galloway tells us, came to the rescue and walked with her. Extensive improvements were done to the law courts in the early 1950s after some plaster fell from the ceiling onto the head of lawyer J.P. Ward and more recently, major refurbishment has taken place. The reopening of the court in 1955 was the first occasion in which judges appeared here in full regalia. It was presided over by Sir Harold Barraclough, Chief Justice, and Associates Justices McGregor and Henry. In 1897, Ethel Benjamin was admitted to the bar by Mr Justice Williams. As a student, she had requested to use the law library, but was allowed instead to read in the judges' chambers. 
At the time of her admission, a resolution in the Society's minutes suggested a dress code for female lawyers. This was sent to Mr Justice Williams, but he declined jurisdiction and the matter was dropped. One of the popular early judges was Sir Joshua Strange-Williams, who became a judge in 1875, remaining in Dunedin for 39 years. His farewell dinner in 1913, prior to leaving for a Privy Councillor position in England, was held at the Savoy. The chair of the wine committee, Mr Hosking, allowed two bottles of champagne per person, and as the evening progressed, the planned programme was deviated from, and Willie Bruff, an early member of my husband's firm, recalls wending his way home in the mist in the early hours of the following morning, thinking he could hear music, only to come upon the orchestra sitting in the gutter, playing to their heart's content. Another lawyer going home mistook the tram lines on High Street for those of his home street, Rattray Street, and was found by a policeman next morning at 6am crawling past High Street School. An entry in the Law Council minutes provided a subcommittee to settle accounts and collect levies. The beautiful red carpet from the Law Library, which had been borrowed for the evening, apparently required major cleaning before it could be returned. I spent some years working in the courts as a probation officer and was married to a lawyer and have to say, I never witnessed any event such as the above, no doubt due to the uplifting and sobering effect of a greater number of females in the profession. In my time, the judges we mainly were involved with were judges Tom Ross, J.D. Murray, Tony Willey and Jim Seaman the latter two with whom I played tennis in the Moana Tennis Club. I remember Judge Ross in the children's court one day giving a young girl who had been up to some mischief in Mosgiel a right telling off. As she, shamefaced, turned for the door, with perfect timing, he said, Stop a moment, I have your latest school report here. He then proceeded to read out comments and warmly commended her on her achievements and prospects for the future. One could feel her warming to his praise and standing tall. I doubt she ever came before the court again. Judge Murray was very involved with the local youth camp. He and I tried hard with a certain young man, who when I first saw him sentenced as a 16 or 17-year-old, had the appearance of a Botticelli angel. In his chambers one day, trying to work out a strategy to help this young man, J.D. explained to me his involvement in the youth camp and his strong religious faith. When you are giving out all your time and your work, you have to have some way of getting back something for yourself. Very true. Jim Seaman had wonderful rhetoric on the bench. Sentencing a young man who lived in Kaikara Valley to periodic detention, which was near Cargill's Corner, and depriving him of his driving licence... The lawyer argued his client would have difficulty getting to periodic detention without his car. Addressing the young man, Judge Seaman said, You do not require your juggernaut to get over the hill. Put on your sneakers and jog. Lawyers, along with Irishmen and blondes, are often the butt of not very kind jokes. We in Dunedin are fortunate indeed that those who serve us in the legal profession and courts are of the highest calibre, and have been since the earliest days. I am Anne Barraclough, reporting for Heritage Matters.
Photographer and filmmaker Henry Gore was a true pioneer. When he set out to capture life in the colony in various film mediums, no one had ever done it so extensively before. Judy Southworth looks at the life of this remarkable man. Dunedin's been the base for several well-known, talented photographers, notably William Mellish, George Chance, Hardwick Knight, the Burton Brothers and Franz Barter. Someone who is not as well-known is Henry Gore. He was the first resident film pioneer, initiating many cinematic ventures and importing the latest overseas equipment. He also helped establish Dunedin's first permanent cinema houses. Henry was born here in 1882. His grandfather, James Gore, had immigrated from Liverpool, bringing his family to Otago soon after the gold discoveries at Gabriel's Gully. After a period of mining, James Gore established a family business in the building trade and built a brickworks near Wingatui. In 1881, James Gore became mayor of Dunedin. The family company built the B&Z in the exchange and the Seacliff Hospital. Along with the business and entrepreneurial skills of his father and grandfather, Henry Gore seemed to have inherited an artistic temperament from his mother, who came from a musical family. Henry played the violin and piano, but showed a greater interest in photography. He was given a box camera when young. Later, as a teenager, he was attracted by the cinema, an interest that lasted a lifetime. In 1900, at 18, Gore opened a photography studio in King Edward Street, South Dunedin. Along with his photographs, he began making a number of short newsreels with focus on local events. He had a general interest in new technology and mastered the workings of projectors. He also made his own ingenious cameras. His love of visual innovation extended to stereoscopic photography, where two near-identical photographs were paired to produce the illusion of a single three-dimensional image. The viewing device was called a stereoscope. He owned a large collection of paintings and other artworks. He travelled widely, acquiring new equipment and improving the quality of his Dunedin films. In 1903, he travelled inland to the Southern Alps and produced a natural history film about the Alps. It was sold to the Pathé Company in London. He then travelled internationally to expand his profits and his technical knowledge. In 1904, he worked his way to South Africa as a waiter. He drove trams in Durban but when struck down by fever, returned to Dunedin the following year. Later, he went to Hollywood, where he worked as a projectionist, learning to build and maintain the latest projection equipment. He travelled further in North America and visited Vancouver before returning to New Zealand. In 1910, he married Alan Willis, and they went on to have nine children. Many of his photographs and much of the footage he shot featured his family. His daughter, Coda, helped her father in his business and went on to open her own photographic studio. Gore took on personal assistants, Jack Welsh being one who worked closely with him. Some of the film footage from the period survives at the New Zealand Film Archive in Wellington. Welsh's talky features in 1935 and 36 were the first of their kind in the country. The two men dominated local film production before World War II, and these films included local sporting and cultural events, plus scenic and industrial films. It was an expensive business, and Gore sold off most of his footage to cover costs. 
Gore was instrumental in establishing many of the first cinema halls, moving to Auckland in 1911 to operate New Zealand's first continuous movie screenings at the Queen's Theatre. He returned home the following year and helped transform an inner-city church hall into the new Octagon Cinema. The following year, 1913, he became manager and head projectionist of the new Plaza Cinema in George Street. He continued shooting short films, and during World War I, he made a series of newsreels depicting the mobilisation and training of enlisted men in the South. In 1915, he organised expeditions to the Franz Joseph Glacier and Mount Cook, and over this period shot what was considered to be the finest moving pictures of alpine scenery taken in New Zealand to that time. By filtering the glaring light through a Polaroid screen and an ultraviolet filter, Gore's footage achieved superb results. The premiere of the film was held at the Dunedin King's Theatre in 1916. He filmed returning troops, parades. During the Prince of Wales' visit in 1920, he travelled alongside the official photographer and produced a short documentary film of the tour. This was entitled The Prince of Wales in Maori Land 1920. The film period both reflected and reinforced Britain's colonial links to New Zealand and the precedence of the British Empire over any distinctive New Zealand identity. His footage of the 1925-26 South Seas exhibition in Dunedin, however, showed the beginning of a new age of peace and prosperity. The motor car had replaced the horse, and aviation advances meant regular transcontinental schedules and radio now linked Dunedin to much of the world. Gore was also employed as a photographer for the Otago Witness, but his activities required ongoing financing, so to increase his income, he became more active in the entertainment business. For example, though the Dunedin Town Hall dance was generally associated with Joe Brown, it was begun in 1929 by Gore when the new Town Hall was opened. Gore ran the dance until Joe Brown took it over in 1935. Gore organised cabaret evenings at Cargill's Castle during the 1930s. In 1926, he started a lottery called Pieret's Pool, offering bone china prizes rather than the standard chocolate. Gore's efforts as a projectionist, cinematographer, technical engineer and entrepreneur show him as Dunedin's leading film pioneer and innovator. He left behind a record of events and attitudes in southern New Zealand from the turn of the century until the Second World War. A detailed account of early New Zealand filmmaking is contained in Simon Price's book, New Zealand's First Talkies, and it was the source of much of the information in this booklet. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. Medicine was primitive and difficult in the early days of Dunedin. Anne Barraclough discovered this when she studied the work of three of the area's first doctors. Joseph Crocombe was born in Bath, England in 1811 and, with his brother, studied medicine and surgery in London in an apprenticeship model practised at the time, gaining his licence to practise in 1833. He then set off on a two-year voyage to the South Seas but was shipwrecked off Bolivia. The lifeboat he was in was picked up and taken to Sydney, where he learnt that the family business, a sugar plantation in the West Indies, had collapsed, as had most with the abolition of slavery. He acquired some basic surgical instruments and signed on as surgeon to the Weller Brothers whaling station at Otakau, 
this did not work out, so he returned to Sydney, where he was persuaded by Johnny Jones to join his settlement at Waikoaiti, which he did in 1838, covering a vast area. He married Arapeta Raureka in 1848, having four children before she died in 1851. He then married a Scottish immigrant, Mary Ann Warden, with whom he had a further 13 children, of whom seven survived childhood. He was the first doctor in the South Island, covering a large area, including Moiraki, Waikawaiti and Port Chalmers. The stethoscope had just been invented, and when his meagre supply of drugs failed to achieve results, he used Maori remedies. Sterilising and antiseptics were unknown, and roads were non-existent. But the patients, mainly Pākehā and their Māori wives, were robust and strong, living in primitive but well-ventilated houses and working outdoors. He acquired two horses, and in time other doctors and a pharmacist arrived. As he aged, he handed over much of his practice to the new arrivals, devoting himself to tutoring Johnny Jones's children and involvement with community organisations. He served on the local school and church committees, was registrar of births, deaths and marriages, and the first postmaster. He died at age 63 of typhus in 1874 and is buried with his second wife at Waikoaiti. On the John Wycliffe in March 1848, the first doctor arrived to practice in the Dunedin area, Dr Henry Manning, appointed as surgeon's superintendent. He was born in London in 1815, where he studied medicine, gaining his member of the Royal College of Surgeons, in 1837 and sailed out to Nelson in 1840, but returned to England, where he practised for a few years before coming to Dunedin with the first settlers. We are told by Dr Robert Valpy Fulton that he was... A man of curious temperament and striking appearance tall and slight, with piercing black eyes and long, glossy black hair hanging down to his shoulders. Of these curls, he was extraordinarily vain, and many of the old settlers remember surprising him in the morning with his hair still in curl papers. He was of most excitable, fiery temperament, eccentric to a degree, very kind to the poor and those he liked, but to those he considered purse-proud or important, he took violent dislikes and in his most lurid language expressed this opinion of them. He was a clever surgeon, a particularly skillful setter of fractures and a reducer of dislocations. He was very kind to women and particularly fond of children, to whom he often gave entertainments and treats. In 1851, he married Miss Eliza Stokes, who apparently was as eccentric as he, and like him, an accomplished horse rider. She was tall, striking-looking, handsome and well-educated. At one Christmas party for children, they produced an enormous pie in each segment of which was a small live kitten. They had no children but were hospitable entertainers. In 1853, Dr Williams placed an advertisement in the Otago Witness inviting parents to present their children for vaccination at his house, Stonehenge. The smallpox vaccine had been developed in 1798 by Edward Jenner, so perhaps this refers to the smallpox vaccination. In 1855, the people of Belclutha built a house for the couple beside a stream 
at Wairepa Bush, where they moved and established a beautiful garden. Dr. Manning covered a wide area and worked until he died in December 1884, aged 73. His wife died in 1901, aged 88. The next doctor to settle in Dunedin was Dr. Robert Williams, who arrived on the Bernicia in December 1848. As Dr. Manning was established as the settlement's doctor, Dr. Williams decided to combine his medical practice with farming. So he and his family settled near Henley, where there was a large Maori settlement and several whalers nearby. He had been born in Bristol of an old Welsh family in 1814 and attended Oxford University, then studied surgery in London under the eminent surgeon Robert Liston, the first to use ether in the pre-anaesthetic days. In 1853, he accepted the post of surgeon in the small hospital on Bell Hill amid much opposition, as a surgeon was considered unnecessary. He became involved in community affairs. He was a JP, a member of the Road Board, referee of the AMP Society, steward of races, coroner, member of the Settlers Association and chairman of the Constitutional Association. Dr Fulton tells us, He was a powerfully built man with a full reddish beard, a great walker and active and energetic in all his movements. Rather peppery and impetuous in his temper, like so many Welshmen, he very frequently came into verbal collision with the more stolid, hard-headed Scottish settlers. In 1853, he was persuaded to stand against Captain Cargill as provincial superintendent, but after vehement protest by Cargill's supporters, decided to withdraw. He was a skilled and tireless doctor and adopted the use of chloroform shortly after it had been developed by James Simpson. In 1857, he took on Dr Nelson as a partner. He planned a trip home to England shortly after he retired, but died suddenly in 1862, shortly before the ship was to sail. He is buried in the Southern Cemetery. I am Anne Barraclough, reporting for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.